Please remain standing as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 1 through 2 and 11 through 26. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one of you do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? for he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting in the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barbados, Bar- Barabbas to them. But he had said Jesus, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may please be seated. Thank you, Judy, for reading our lesson this morning. There's a lot in that text. Someday I'm gonna preach on that text that men, you should always listen to your wife. (laughs) We've come to the end of this Lenten series that we started five weeks ago on the Sunday after Ash Wednesday called Cross Culture. And the series is not about different ethnic groups or how to get along uh, with different people groups. It's really about the DNA of the church that those of us who call ourselves disciples have been called of Jesus, if we're going to follow him, to deny ourselves and to pick up a cross and follow. And that involves shared suffering. Today on Palm Sunday, we began with a ticker tape parade, but we know where this is going. 
Between the parade on Sunday and Friday, there is coming a funeral procession. And this is why we often refer to it as Passion Sunday. Because even while we were waving our palm branches, we know where this cavalcade is headed. On Monday, Jesus will cleanse the temple to the displeasure of the Sanhedrin. On Thursday, he'll be in the place where they pray in the garden and he'll be betrayed by a dear friend with a kiss and taken that night to Caiaphas, the high priest, where he'll be deposed by the Sanhedrin. And early the next morning, they'll take him to the governor, to Pilate. And so all of that to say in Matthew 27, uh, it's about over. The charges have been trumped up. There are three charges, essentially. He's subverting our nation, they said. He's forbidden us to pay Roman taxes, they said. And he is setting himself up as a new king. The Jews under Roman occupation had absolutely no authority to adjudicate civil matters. But they did know how to pressure in order to influence a verdict. And so they bring this rogue rabbi to Pilate to be deposed. And what you may not know is that in the Roman judicial system, the governor had extraordinary power. There were no jury trials. There were no prosecutors. There were no defense attorneys. No, the governor, the governor himself had the authority to conduct the trial, to issue the verdict, and to determine the sentence. That's a lot of power. Pilate, of course, was no friend to the Jews. On the contrary, there's evidence from Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, that Pilate took great delight in harassing the Jews. In fact, at one point, we're told by Josephus that during Pilate's decade in office in Judea, that he actually confiscated money from the temple coffers in order to build an aqueduct to pump water into Jerusalem. In other words, Pilate used church finances for a city project. He was no friend to the Jews. Luke chapter 13, if you go to chapter 13, Luke, recalls how Pilate's troops one day drew blood in the temple courts. They walked into the temple gates and slaughtered a group of religious pilgrims who had come down from Galilee. And as a result, Governor Pilate was called on the carpet by the emperor. And so in this pickle of a situation that he's now in, he would need to navigate these waters very carefully for the sake of his position. And why is it so often, whether it's ecclesiastical or political, why is it that too often we're more concerned with our own self-preservation than for the welfare of those that we serve? I'm intrigued at this point by the silence of Jesus. That's interesting. Pilate says to him in verse 13, don't you hear the accusations they're making against you? But Jesus gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor himself was astonished. Jesus offers no resistance, no rebuttal, no defense. He's speechless. Now, in our legal system, some of you know it better than I do, when a suspect is taken into custody, the officer says, what does the officer say? 
you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Has anybody ever heard? Never mind, don't answer that. When it comes to trial, if the defendant is too quiet or pleads the fifth over and over again, what do we say? He's guilty. On the other hand, when the accused becomes too adamant, too defensive, we think uh, thou dost protest too much. And that is a direct line from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Guilty, either way. But in the case of Rome versus Jesus, the early church saw his silence as a fulfillment of scripture. Specifically, this is in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he never said a word. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he never opened his mouth. You remember the old spiritual, he never said a mumbling word. I think it was Euripides who once said, silence is true wisdom's best reply. He may have also said, the smarter you get, the less you speak, which is tough for a clergy person to take. The mass shooting that happened this week on Monday left me speechless. I have no words. Sherry and I were working out in the yard and the phone, the cell phone began to blow up and I came in and, and took a quick shower and came to the church immediately. There were three places that I really wanted to be on Monday and one was at the hospital, one was at the school and one was at the church. And so we came here and we began to pray. We had a prayer vigil. Monday was the 130th mass shooting in the new year. That's more than one a day. It was the 16th school shooting. And so we had a prayer vigil. Monday night, people streaming in and out. We had no words. Channel 5 heard about it and came over. And the reporter asked me a good question. He said, what do you say to people on a day like today? And I thought, for a minute and I said, I, I really, you don't say much on a day like today. You just kind of open your doors and you open your arms and you close your mouth. And so I said, tonight, we're basically here to weep and to pray. Why are you praying, he asked. And I said, because I believe that prayer is the church's first response to crisis not the only response. There are those within the doors and outside the walls who think that prayer is, is an excuse for inaction or that prayer is a substitute for action, but it isn't so. David Jones, who's a member of this church, sent me on that very day a, a Twitter feed from David French, a writer who said for the believer, Prayer is not a substitute for action, it's a prerequisite for action. It grounds us in order to serve others. It grounds us before we speak in the public square. Prayer, he said, helps us grieve. Prayer, he said, helps us to hope. And prayer helps us to act. 
intercession must lead to interaction. I find this in the prayer of Jesus on Monday, Thursday, towards the end of this week when we'll be having a service. It's interesting to me when Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He wasn't praying to avoid the cross. He was praying to embrace the cross. It's a prerequisite for power. I read this week that one of our political leaders, and I have no idea what party, I don't know who it was, but one of our leaders said in response to the shooting, these words, well, criminals are criminals. There's nothing we can do about it. And I thought to myself, I'm so glad that Jesus never said, well, sinners are sinners. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm so glad that Dr. Martin Luther King never said, well, racism is racism. Nothing you can do about it. I'm so, I'm so glad that Dr. Billy Graham never said, well, secularism is secularism. There's not a thing we can do about it. Aren't you glad that Bonhoeffer never said, you know, Nazis are Nazis. There's nothing you can, or Mandela in South Africa where we visited, oh, apartheid is apartheid. I'm so glad that Bill Wilson, who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, never said, oh, addiction is addiction. There's nothing that we can do about it. There comes a time when do-nothing hands have blood on them. And no amount of hand wringing or hand washing will cleanse them. I'm talking to myself and to you. I'm not blaming and shaming today. I think that has no place. But I'm saying when the number one cause of death in children under 18 is gun violence, something has to be done. This is, this is not purely a political issue. It is a national crisis. It's a theological crisis. I think of how Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse six, whoever causes one of these little ones to fall, it would be better to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. And I, for one, am so weary of fussing and carping over whether it's mental health or guns. It's all of that. It's all of that. Constant polarization, division, and debate over causality tends to paralyze any response. And we can get so absorbed in groupthink that we're not worried about God think. And I'm worried about God think today. I was so glad to see the article in the Tennessean two days ago of Phil Bresden and Bill Haslam former Republican and Democrat uh, governor who said, uh, we're not trying to do away with the Second Amendment, but friends, we've got to take some steps to change. And we're going to, and the church will be a part of it. I think we should take a page from Jesus at this point. He was silent when it came to defending himself, but he was pretty boisterous when it came to taking care of kids. Unless you become 
like one of these little ones, you'll never inherit the kingdom. Back to the text. Pilate sensed Jesus' innocence that day, but he couldn't afford another ruckus with the religious leaders. So in a moment of political expedience, he came up with an idea, brilliant idea that would get him out of hot water. Again, it was about Pilate at this point. There was a custom during the Passover where amnesty could be offered to one of the prisoners on the day of Passover. It's called the Paschal Pardon. There was a man on death row. We called his name. His name is Barabbas. The prefix bar means son. Abbas, Abba means father, son of the father who had been convicted of insurrection and murder. He was a zealot. He was a Jewish terrorist, nationalist. And ironically, did you notice that Barabbas has the same given name as Jesus? His name is Jesus Barabbas. And so Pilate thinks to himself that if I give the mob, if I give the crowd the choice between Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth, the crowd will get it right. They'll choose to release Jesus of Nazareth, but that's not at all what happened. They chose the freedom-fighting Jesus over the peacemaking Jesus. They chose the Jesus with the sword instead of the Jesus with the towel. Same old, same old. Some things never change. And watch what Pilate does. He washed his hands. Now that's really odd because to wash one's hands at, at the time of a, that's a Jewish custom, it's not a Roman custom and Pilate is, is not a Jew, he's a Roman but he washes his hands. What's he doing? He's filing a disclaimer. He's transferring the guilt. And apparently this governor is so ashamed of his inability to do anything that he washes his hands and blames the crowd. But no amount of soap and water would ever get that stain out. I think the most tragic line in the New Testament is Mark 15, 15. And Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas and delivered Jesus to be crucified. In essence, this is the revised chapel version. He's saying, mob hysteria is mob hysteria. There's nothing that can be done about it. And the guilty one is freed while the innocent one gets nailed. I wonder, this should be a footnote, I wonder if Barabbas ever suffered any survivor's guilt. I wonder if late at night maybe he was thinking, why him and why not me? And it's ironic to me that the last act of mercy that our Lord ever performed in his earthly ministry was to give his life for a thug. I can't help but think that in lieu of what happened on Friday afternoon at 3 p.m., that maybe, just maybe, Barabbas eventually laid down his sword and took up a towel. Last word and I'm finished. I was reading this week about Father Maximilian Kolbe. 
You know the story of Father Colby. In February 1941, Father Colby was arrested by the Gestapo and sent to Auschwitz, 1941. He was a Polish monk who had founded a Franciscan order near Warsaw called the Knights of the Immaculate. He was assigned to Barracks 14, where he ministered to his fellow inmates. He would listen daily to them pour out their hearts, their grief. And then he would raise his emaciated hand and make the sign of the cross in the foul air of the barracks. One night he wrote these words in his diary. The cross of Christ has triumphed over its enemies in every age. And I believe in the end, even in these darkest days of Poland, that the cross will triumph. And then he said a personal word, Jesus, 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 help me to be faithful to the end. One night a man escaped from barracks 14 And the next morning, there was tension, of course, as the prisoners lined up for roll call. The commandant was incensed, and he gave the order that 10 men must die in starvation bunker because of one escapee. He selected randomly the 10, and one of them immediately broke down in tears as he thought of his wife and family. Suddenly, a prisoner broke the rank and ask if he could take the man's place. It was Father Colby. The officer ordered it done, and the 10 were marched to Starvation Bunker, where they would spend their final days. As the hours and days passed, the camp became aware of something extraordinary happening in the death cell. Past prisoners had spent their days dying, howling, and uh, attacking each other in a frenzy of despair, but now, those outside could hear the sound of singing and they knew why. Those poor men had a shepherd to lead them through the valley, pointing them to the good shepherd. The man who was replaced is named Franciszek Gajanicek. He was prisoner 5969. Colby took his place. He survived Auschwitz and lived for 53 more years until his death at age 95. And the family said he spent his life telling others about the man who died in his place. I know a man who's done that for you. I know a man who's done it for me. And I intend to spend the rest of my days telling others about him. But it's not enough just to say it. Something has to be done for the sake of others. And as we do, let me tell you what will happen. The world will see and know the real Jesus. And maybe swords will be bent into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and they will choose the one with the towel instead of the sword. May it be so 
for you, for me, for us, to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.